Our next lesson is found in the book of Revelation. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to uh, just delay the reading of this letter to the church at Ephesus for a few moments to just say a little word in preparation for today's sermon. If you tuned in last week or live streamed with us, you know that we have begun a series of sermons this summer looking at the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, Letters that are found in the opening three chapters of the book of Revelation, that strange book that's so filled with symbolism and numerology and colors and images and visions, uh, very difficult to interpret at times, but it's in the scriptures. And it needs to be considered first and foremost because it is part of our scripture and because we believe that Christ is revealing to John and to the early church what Christ wants for his people who bear his name. We all have expectations of what the church should be, what the church should do. It doesn't matter who you are, you have your own expectations. Clergy have their expectations, parishioners have theirs. People on the left and right of the political spectrum have their own expectations and hope for the church. And while none of these are unimportant, <clears throat> surely they pale into insignificance, really, when compared with what Jesus wants for his church. Now, how do you find that out? <clears throat> Where you go to the scriptures, <clears throat> first of all, to see how God is speaking through the scriptures. Now, you would anticipate that we would be looking at the Gospels, where the words and the deeds of Jesus are recorded, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Uh, and you can do that, of course. That is certainly informative. You can look at the letters of Paul written to the early churches and what Paul in Christ expects of those congregations. You can listen to the voice of the Spirit speaking through the church as the Spirit continues to do, not only on Pentecost, but throughout the season of Pentecost and throughout the ages of the church. The Spirit is always addressing His people, leading them to new truth or new understandings of old truths that can be applied in their own times. But we're looking at this strange book from Revelation, the set letters to the seven churches in this opening vision, a majestic vision, the writer John, we're going to call him John of Pat Patmos. He could be any of several Johns uh, in the early church or in the New Testament. But we're calling him John of Patmos. He has this vision of Jesus. And we read that he sees the word of God. It's not just hearing it, but he sees the word. And in response to what Jesus asked him to do, he sends these letters to seven different churches. Now, these churches, if you look, if your uh, Bible has maps in the back, you may want to look at the back of your Bible. And I encourage you to have your Bible with you for worship so, and have it open to this chapter when we read it in a few moments. But the, the maps in the back of many Bibles may even have a map of this part of the world at the time of the early church. And you can see where the Isle of Patmos is, 60 miles from uh, the continent of Asia. And if you look at the seven churches that are receiving these letters, you'll see they're in kind of a circle. And they were on an ancient road that connected the most populous and the most prominent cities in the Roman province of Asia. And these letters that were written contain timeless and universal truths that we can apply to the life of the church in any age, and we can apply them to the life of disciples and members of the church in any age as well. And I hope we will do that as a part of this process. But at any rate, these letters were circular letters. 
They were read by all the churches, not just the one that bore their name. The book itself has several hints that these letters are to be read, read aloud in the presence of the congregation. But Ephesus would read the uh, letter to Laodicea, Pergamon would read the letter uh, to Ephesus and so forth. So you heard the letters, although they're specific to the needs and uh, strengths and weaknesses of each congregation, I think we can identify ourselves in each of these congregations in some way. We'll begin this morning with Ephesus. But if you look at chapter 1, uh, remember that Jesus helps us because uh, he, he gives some interpretation to some of the most frequently used images. The seven golden lampstands <clears throat> uh, represent the seven churches. The churches are called lampstands, which is a great metaphor for the church because like the church, a lampstand bears the light. It is not the light, but it is to reflect the light and carry that light into the world. Jesus said as much when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Don't hide your light under a bushel. So burn it brightly so that all may see and give glory to your God in heaven, not to each of you. Our calling is to glorify God. Also, uh, he says that the seven angels are representative of the angels for the seven churches. Now, was this a reference to literal angels as we sometimes understand them? Was this a reference to the particular leaders, the bishop or the congregational leader in one of those churches? We're not told, so uh, that's open for discussion. But the main thing I want us to see or remember from that first chapter is while much that you read about in these letters and in the whole book of Revelation can be discouraging and depressing and even frightening, the first thing Jesus does the risen Jesus, when John of Patmos falls at his feet to worship him in chapter 1, is that he comforts him. First thing he says to him is, do not be afraid. Jesus did not give these messages to terrify his people, but to offer them comfort and encouragement as they're going to, through an awful time of struggle and persecution in the Roman Empire. We don't know exactly which persecution it was under which emperor. It could have been Nero or Domitian or Trajan. All of them persecuted the church in some way. But they're trying to exist as a community of faith in the midst of all of these struggles and these trials as people of faith. Now the first letter that uh, John writes that Jesus dictates to is the church at Ephesus. This was the, the greatest church and the Roman province of Asia. Terribly significant. A seaport. You can go there today. It's called Kusadasi. It's in the uh, country of modern-day Turkey, as are all of these uh, seven locations. And if you were present in the congregation, I would ask how many of you have ever actually been to Kusadasi to visit because it's one of the most remarkable archaeological sites in the whole of the world. And as they continue to unearth Ephesus in Kusadasi, you can see just how wealthy, how prominent, how prestigious this community was. It was the greatest city in that province at that time. It was not the capital, that was Pergamum, but it was still a great place and influenced the whole of the area. Apostle, the Apostle Paul recognized immediately how important the church at Ephesus was because it was centrally located and influenced all the other congregations. He wanted to go there himself on his second missionary journey, but he was not able to do so. But he returned later and spent two and a half years there in Ephesus, where he preached, where he taught, where he healed, 
where on one occasion his preaching created a riot because one of the things that was in Ephesus was this great temple to the goddess Diana, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of the hunt. And tourists would come from all over the region to visit this beautiful temple there. And when Paul preached against that and the selling of these little idols that uh, memorialize uh, Diana, well, the community went nuts because this was their livelihood. And what Paul was preaching was out of accord with what they perceived to be the good of that community, even that church, perhaps. But this just brings home to us that <clears throat> if you stand with Jesus Christ, if you're faithful to Christ above all else, then certainly you will find yourself on occasion at odds with the powers around you, the political powers, the economic powers, the social powers. So what does it mean? That certainly would apply to our life in times, would it not? What do we do when our values and our views, our morals, our ethics is in conflict with the culture in which we are living? That was a great question for the people that were receiving these letters initially. That's still a great question for the people of faith today. So let us listen to this first letter from chapter 2, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the, among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake, for the sake of my name, and that you have grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, remember then from what you have fallen. Repent, do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. <clears throat> Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, listen, to everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. The grass withers <clears throat> and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. First, let's notice in this letter that Jesus knows not only this church, he, he knows all of the churches well. He, we read here that he walks among them. He is present among them. What he is writing, his assessment of that church is not based on hearsay or conjecture or gossip or anything else. No, he's there. He can see for himself what's going on in the life and work of that congregation. And one thing he notices that is most praiseworthy is they are, are a hard-working congregation. They're not a people who are sitting on the sidelines letting other people do the work of the church. They are all engaged, and it is exhausting work. The word that's used here in the Greek for work, kapos, means backbreaking labor, physical labor. So they were hard workers, and that's to their credit. Work is a good thing. Work is one of the blessings of God. That's why it's so unfortunate in any society when so many people are out of work. 
That's one of the blessings God gives to us. To continue working as long as we can and as hard as we can. Not to be mere spectators. Work was an original part of the creation. A lot of people act as if work was a result of the fall of humankind. That then work became a burden. And in a sense, it, the burdensome part of it, the drudgery of work, was a result of human sin and fall. But work was there initially. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden to till the garden, to do the work. <clears throat> We're still about the task of doing the work of God. Well, what about us? What would this hardworking church and the message to it say about us? Are we a hardworking congregation? Look around you in this congregation at the people that are working. Look into your own heart and soul. What are you doing to serve neighbor and to serve God in and through the life of this congregation? Are you letting others do it? Or are you on the front lines as they were in Ephesus? A Gallup poll a few years ago that dealt with the church said that 50% of the members of most congregations do absolutely nothing. Their names are on the roll. They know their, their funeral will be probably. If they have a child that's going to get married, maybe it'll take place in that. But they're not working. They're not involved, either in the education or in the worship or in the service ministries of the congregation. They're just names on the roll. 50% do nothing in most churches. 10% do everything. And you could probably apply that to this congregation. If we, I don't think we have the 2,900 members we say, we're in the process of looking at that role and trying to make it accurate so when our new pastor arrives, he or she will be ready to know who's on board. But I would say 20, 290 people, 300 people are the hardest working. They do everything in the church. They feed on Tuesday and Thursday evening. They're in worship. They're in Sunday school. They participate in various ministries and activities of the congregation. And the challenge before the church, of course, is how do you engage that other 40% who are there, but basically they're not that hardworking. They are on the sidelines. Well, just look into your own life and heart and say, what does this say about me and, and my work? So it's a good thing that the Ephesians were so hardworking. It sets an example for the rest of us. Another thing that is mentioned here is that uh, they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, something that Jesus himself hates. Now, we won't get into the Nicolaitans at this point. It's going to come up later in another letter. But suffice it to say this morning that <clears throat> they were a group that approved of licentious living and encouraged it and were leading many people astray. Even earlier in the life of the early church, if you read in Acts, the 20th chapter, when Paul is taking leave of the church in Ephesus, he gathers the elders of the, of the church together down by the river, and he warns them about false preachers that are coming, wolves that are coming, that will devour the, sh uh, the flock unless they are prepared for that. Was he talking about the Nicolaitans that were active in Ephesus? Later on, perhaps so. At any rate, this church in Ephesus, in a positive sense, we could say several wonderful things about them, as Jesus did. They're diligent. They are determined. They are faithful. They test out things in terms of what God would expect, ideas and doctrines and that kind of things. They're orthodox. They are faithful. 
And you must be thinking, well, gee whiz, what could they, how could they possibly improve on that? They seem to be doing everything right. They seem to be believing everything right. So what could be missing? I have this against you, Jesus says, to the church in every age. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. That's a sad commentary, isn't it? Especially if Jesus is saying, you have forgotten and forsaken your love for me. Nothing sadder than losing a first love, is it? And we remember the passion, the promise that so filled our first loves. When I was looking for hymns for today, I looked for a hymn that was dealing with this kind of lost love, this love that is uh, waning. I didn't really find it. I found a lot of hymns about love, but I was reminded if we just sang country music songs. One of my best friends died right when I came to this church to begin the interim here. Uh, and he had the same name as the member of this church that had just died a few days before that, James Morrison, Jim Morrison. But my friend in Tennessee, when I was living there, was a great friend and a great lover of country music. And he could tell you the lyrics of any country song that came along. And many that didn't come along, many just made up. I couldn't believe they were actual songs, but I wouldn't mention some of them from, from the pulpit. But at any rate, he says the greatest country song ever written was Faded Love. Faded Love. But long before Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys wrote and recorded that song, long before a host of country stars recorded versions of their own, George Jones, Willie Nelson, Loretta Lynn, Conway Twitty, and my favorite, Patsy Cline. But long before they recorded their versions, Jesus had his own version of faded love. You've forgotten the love you had at first. If you prefer rhythm and blues to country music, you might remember the words of the great B.B. King in one of his classics, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone, baby. Gone away. You know you've done me wrong. You're going to be sorry for it someday. Is that the message that Jesus was sending to Ephesus? You've done me wrong. You've forgotten our love. Or, his, or was he singing Patsy Cline's faded love? I miss you, darling, more and more every day as heaven would miss the stars above. With every heartbeat, I still think of you and remember our faded love. Now that might be a subtext for most of the country songs that have been written over the years. But anyway, it's a challenge to us. How is our love for Jesus? As a congregation, we do a lot of great things. We believe the right things. We have a great confession of faith with these confessions through the history of the church. We are precise about our doctrine. We are ethically involved. We've committed ourselves to social ministries and social justice issues through the years and we can be proud of that fact but if we do all of that at the expense of love then we have failed love is what ultimately matters it's the first mark of the church of Jesus Christ how do you love how do you love your Lord how do you love your neighbor 
If you do all these things, hey, you can even give your body to be burned, be a martyr. But if it's not prompted by love, it's just a bunch of noise, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. And then he says, I'll show you a more excellent way than all these other gifts that you have. That's the gift of love. That is our first calling as a people of God. Presbyterians, and I speak for myself as well as most of us, I think give a lot more attention in our church and in our life as disciples to right doctrine and to right ethics than we do to right feelings. What do we really feel? We're uncomfortable with emotion. You can't control emotion or passion. We sometimes discourage personal testimonies because we don't know what people are going to say. We tend to be God's rational and intellectual followers. And they may be our assets, but our assets probably point to our liabilities as well. And maybe our liabilities is that we haven't given enough attention to our love. Our love of Jesus. Our love of one another. Our love of those with us in the church. Knowledge is important. I know that. Ethics are important. Of course they are. But they're no substitute for love. Paul says at one point, we are controlled by lo the love of Christ. We're constrained by the love of Christ, the old King James Version put it. That means that's what motivates us. And you can be sure, if your love for Jesus begins to wane, your commitment to right doctrine and right actions is going to be diminished as well. It is love that motivates us in the Christian church. And so Jesus asked Peter three times after Peter had betrayed him, do you love me? Because if you love me, you're going to feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? He asked me, he asked you, do you really love Jesus? Do you love him like you loved him at first? Or has that love faded? There's a great story in the book by Will Williman and Stanley Hauerwas entitled, Where Do Resident Aliens Live? And he tells this wonderful story that I'm going to read to you in a moment. It's a story that comes from Clarence Jordan. I hope you're familiar with the great preacher, ethicist, Greek scholar, and farmer from Georgia who formed the Koinonia communities, the Koinonia farms. But anyway, this is uh, what's written in, by Williman and Harawas. The story is told of Clarence Jordan, the great prophet, who visited an integrated church in the Deep South. Jordan was surprised to find a relatively large church so thoroughly integrated, not only black and white, but also rich and poor, and in the early 60s, too, that Jordan asked the old country preacher, how did you get the church this way? I'm going to just parenthetically say here, I was telling a minister friend of mine, we we're on a, a group that meets by Zoom twice a month, about this story. He said, well, that happened near you. That was in a congregation just outside of the Raleigh-Durham era, area. I don't know what church it was, but the story continues. And so Clarence said, what, what say? And the preacher said, and Jordan went on to explain that he was surprised to find a church so integrated in the South in those days in the early 60s. And when he asked what he had done, the preacher said, well, 
When our preacher left our small church, I went to the deacons and said, I'll be the preacher. The first Sunday as preacher, I opened the book and I read, As many of you as has been baptized into Jesus have, have put on Jesus, and there is no longer Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, males or female, because you are one in Jesus. And then I closed the book and I said, If you won with Jesus, you won with all kind of folks. And if you ain't, you ain't. Jordan asked what happened after that. Well, the preacher said, the deacons took me to the back room of the church after that service. And they told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preacher no more. Jordan then asked, what did you do? He said, I fired them deacons. Then what happened, asked Jordan. Well, said the old hillbilly preacher, I preached that church down to four members. And not long after that, it grew and it grew and it grew. And I found out that revival sometimes don't mean bringing people in, but getting people out that don't love Jesus. Isn't that a great story? Getting people out that don't love Jesus. Love is at the heart of it. And if we don't have the love, we won't have the work, we won't have the passion for right belief or right action. And still, Yet another way of understanding these words from Jesus is your love is not what it was at first. He's talking about their love for one another. And sometimes we can be so committed to our way of thinking, our understanding of what is right and wrong in terms of belief or in terms of action, that we become judgmental and we condemn those in the church who don't see things that we see the way we see them. And the church begins to unravel. That too happens. And I don't know if that was a problem in Ephesus, their love for one another, but I know it's a, it's a problem in a lot of churches. Once we begin to separate because we don't love one another enough to tolerate one another, we do damage to the church. William Barclay in his commentary on Revelation says that sometimes orthodoxy costs too much. In our effort to weed out those who don't think or act right, we destroy our love for one another. And that is what we're called to. Love our neighbor for sure, but love our neighbors within the family of Christ for sure. God help us if anything in the church matters more than our love of Jesus and what he has done for us. So while much is commendable and praiseworthy in the Ephesian church, the fact that their love had grown cold was a serious failing. And so Jesus gives them a threefold solution to the problem. It's worth paying attention to. He says, first, remember. Look at the verbs here. Remember. Remember what it was like when your love was young and fresh, passionate and exciting. Remember what love was like when you fell in love with the church when you came to Christ, how you loved gathering together to sing the songs of faith, to pray, to study together, to serve together. Remember that. Remember how it was when love was young and fresh. Second thing he says to do is repent. Turn around. Confess how you failed. And many of the things that you were doing then, you're not doing now. And many of the things you were not doing then, you are doing now. So there's reason to repent, sins of omission and commission. Confess the errors of your way and seek God's forgiveness and the forgiveness of your neighbor. 
And then thirdly, do the things you did at first. Sometimes our actions have to precede our feelings. Do what you did at first. Do you remember what you did when you first came to Christ and to the church? Do you remember your devotional life? Do you remember your study? Do you remember your fellowship? Do you remember your service? Do those things. This is great advice not only for the relationship between Christ and his church. A relationship of love, a relationship, a covenantal relationship between husband and wife. The, uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus didn't come up with this. This was the, the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea. They all talk about the relationship between God and his people being that between a husband and wife, two spouses that love and care for one another. So the advice Jesus is giving to the church can be applied, I think, in a lot of our spousal relationships. Does your love with your spouse seem to be fading? It's not as exciting, as thrilling as it once was. Well, what were you doing when it was that thrilling? Picking wildflowers off the road? Writing love letters? Waiting with anticipation just to be in the other's presence? What were you doing then? Remember it. Start living like that. Whether you feel it or not, just start living as if you do love that person. You may find the feelings returning. Because what you're going to discover is that person's going to change in response to your love. And they're going to end up being a far more appealing than they may have been before. It's not that the love was gone in the relationship. It's just that it was covered over by all these other obligations and commitments that seem to matter most. And so as Jesus draws this letter to Ephesus to a close, he seems to be warning them and us not to let the love die or else your lampstand will go away. You won't be the church anymore because you're not bearing the light. It has been extinguished. John of Patmos says, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I'm glad we're going to be wearing the red through the summer talking about the Spirit speaking to the churches. So what is the Spirit saying to you in your life of discipleship? What is he saying to our congregation here in Greensboro, wherever you participate in congregational life? What is the Spirit saying to your church? And the promise is, as we're faithful, we will conquer. We will eat from the tree of paradise. That's not just saying we're going to heaven when we die. That's saying we'll discover the life abundant and eternal that God created for us initially and Jesus came to restore to us. So let us pray that our love of Jesus, our love of the church, our love of one another will be recognized and lived out in this congregation and in others. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.